This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 133. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from pensionplanpuppets.com. It's Acting the Fool. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fulman? Not too shabby. How about yourself? I'm I'm doing well. The, the Leafs are, it's weird, they're contributing positively to my state as a human being. I, it's an odd thing. I, <laughs> I didn't realize hockey could do that. No, it's uh, it's been weird. But, you know, you, I think you have to be encouraged by that showing last night. That was positive, especially in the absence of Austin Matthews. I mean, yeah, it wasn't absolutely. perfect, but yeah, good stuff. Yeah, I mean, he and... Austin Matthews didn't play, but he had the same contribution that Connor McDavid did. So, <laughs> here's a freebie. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, anyway, now, that now was now that uh... we say that McDavid's going to put up 12 points against us on, on Monday. <laughs> we needed to time this for after this little triplet series ended, so that we could dunk on him in relative safety. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, still though, very good. Four nothing showing. I think four nothing overstates yeah, how lopsided it was, but yeah. It's for nothing with a goal, with a pretty notable goaltending differential, right? Like, yeah. as as nice as that kind of vintage Jason Spezza goal is, maybe, you, you, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that shouldn't happen in the NHL. It's the reason it's vintage is because goalies have gotten good enough that they don't regularly get fooled by those. Yeah, and also it's like they've chosen to run with nine hundred year old goaltender Mike Smith. Yeah, actually, who like. To be fair, Spets is like perfectly calibrated to work on a goaltender like Mike Smith because they're from the same generation. Yeah, this exact showdown could have happened 10, 15 years ago. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, but that was a good showing, I thought. Uh, there were some interesting trends in that, but mostly it's things that we've kind of remarked on. Uh, I guess briefly we could mention, what do you think of Pierre Engvall shut down 3C? Which is a thing that we've sort of been forced to do lately. Yeah, it's... um. It's interesting. So it's funny that you mentioned, like, shut down 3C because yesterday that line, Engvall, Mikheyev, um, Engvall, Mikheyev, Hyman, Hyman. Yeah. played 18 minutes. And, you know, I'm using all situations here, but there was one power play that lasted 24 seconds. So that's basically all five on five time. Um, so, and the, the second line, quote unquote, of Barabana, of Kerfoot, Nylander played 14 minutes. Right mm-hmm. now, a lot of this was with score effects and protecting the lead, and it seemed to my eye, I haven't checked the matchup stats on this, but it, it seems like Keefe was trying to, you know, even being the road team, he was trying to get that line out against um, the Dreisaitl line primarily. The, yes. The, the McKayev line. With surprising is. success. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it worked as well as it, it possibly could have, which, which is nice. Mm-hmm. That line uh, has only played together for two games, I think. I looked at their kind of line stats this morning. But in those two games, their overall numbers are, are decent. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, it's, it's two games. <laughs> you can read essentially nothing into it, but it's like, okay, they've maybe earned a little bit of, like, maybe there's something here we should explore. Yeah, it's an awkward fit. We've talked a lot about Zach Hyman as the complementary offensive player that we know he can be. And when we tried Hyman... Kerfoot, Mikhaev, earlier in the season, we were like, this isn't very good. And it didn't seem to work, and it seems to have kind of fallen by the wayside. However, in these uh, straightened times that we've had in terms of injuries to central and complementary players in the forward lineup, 
it does look like Pierre Engvall is a good defensive center. I think that that's been established. It was remarked on in the AHL. He's always looked like he gives a full effort. He's very big. He's pretty mobile. It's good. The offense is just not really there. And it, it probably never will be to a large extent in the NHL. The question is, can you make a decent line that outscores its competition by hook or by crook doing this? It's fine if they're super low event. We could probably use a depth line like that. Yeah, well, I mean, so far they have 100% of the goals at 5-on-5. Five five. Can you do better than that? Only no, a little bit. No. <laughs> but, so, yeah, yeah like, it, it, it's a weird line. I think Kevin Papetti had a tweet that I think um, it illustrated some of the appeal of, of this line, which is that Mikheyev and Engvall are both very, very big and very, very fast. Mm-hmm. And it's just they can muck things up with their wingspan and they can counterattack and just, you know, you know, turn a nothing situation into a okay chance that they will probably not score. Yeah. In terms of, you know, a lot of the same criticisms we had of, of the, of this line with Engvall replacing, or being replaced by Kerfoot, still hold. Like, I, I still can't see this line generating offense regularly, right? It took a superhuman effort from, from Zach Hyman to get a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like it noted that he danced Connor McDavid in the course yeah. of that. Just pointing that out. Thank you. And, and I think that legally makes him the owner of McDavid's heart trophy. <laughs> As well as his weird cavernous crypt house that he lives in. <laughs> yeah. Hyman also has a murder house now. <laughs> um, if he wants it. I, I'd sell that soon if I were him. But yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about like the, the market for like super houses like that in Edmonton. I mean, it, it's... It's probably not nothing. There's a lot of probably oil tycoons there and, and, and very rich people in Edmonton. But it can't be enormous, right? Like, if you're, if you're buying a place like that and renovating it, which is what McDavid and his, his partner did, apparently, mm-hmm. you're probably taking a bit of a loss on it at some point, right? You would think. And, you know, I don't know if he's planning to stay there. He probably should. He's signed as if he's going to be there for the better part of his career, at least. And so maybe he's just content, this is how I want to live, whatever. But yeah, I do think you have to be conscious that if like one person drops out of the market for that kind of house, that makes a big difference in terms of the overall demand for it, because there aren't that many people. Yeah. Then again, know? like he, he might just be accepting, okay, I'm going to live here for at least the next seven, eight years. And I personally think McDavid is going to be in order for his entire career. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to live here, you know, for the, however long the rest of his career is possibly. And then you know if he, he'll he'll make he'll make enough money that if he has to take a loss of like a few million dollars amortized over however long he's going to have been there, it's probably not a big deal to him. Anyways, this has been back to real estate. Can <laughs> <laughs> just be like terrible property brothers. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but I would say on net that was an encouraging showing from the Toronto Maple Leafs. You can feel yeah. good about that. You know, it's mostly been pretty good. It's the funniest thing, is that since. That absolute embarrassment of blowing a 5-1 lead to the Ottawa Senators. The Leafs have mostly been pretty good and pretty successful. They had one game against the Calgary Flames where they lost uh, 3-0. But they didn't even play badly. It just seemed like it wasn't their night, and that's kind of how it goes. I've actually been fine with them. It, it has possibly helped the uh, the bitter pill of the 5-1 blown lead go down a little bit easier, because I've... I haven't dwelt on that game to any great extent, so that's good. Yeah, um, we've we've been, I you know I'm kind of comfortable 
with what this team is right now, or at least what we'll know about this team until until the playoffs and until really the back end of the playoffs if we get there, which mm-hmm. is that I think they're the best team in this division. And that's that was kind of where we thought they were at the start of the year, but they needed to show it. And we were also concerned about Montreal possibly learning how to shoot, which is kind of the one threat we identified to their divisional supremacy. Mm-hmm. And as we'll get into later, that threat has, has subsided a bit. Yes. But yeah, they're the best team in the division, and it's very hard to tell where they stack up in the league, as it is for every team this year, because, you know, we don't have any cross-divisional play. Yeah, exactly. And to some extent, as we've said before, it doesn't really matter in the short term, because they don't have to worry about anyone until the third round. So, by and large, you should be encouraged, I think, about the state of the Toronto Maple Leafs, despite some flaws. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like, we're we're getting better results than than we deserve, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's true of every top team in the league because the the gap between good and bad hockey teams is not enormous on on the face of it, right? Like, there, there's always you, there's always a bit of uh, fortune going our way. You know, I, I think, as I said, we're I think we're the best team in this division. I, I don't expect us to keep, um, you know, acquiring points at like a seventy five percent rate. Mm-hmm. But we've done it so far, which which is nice. And even with, even if we perform as I expect us to going forward, we're going to comfortably win the division in the regular season. Yeah. And, you know, I believe it was uh, Micah McCurdy had the Leafs at least briefly tracking as winning the President's Trophy. Um, now, this was true as of a couple of days ago in the morning. I don't know what fluctuations have happened in other divisions since. But it's kind of crazy to think about the Leafs as just the number one team in the league in the regular season. I know no one actually gives a shit about winning the President's Trophy. Especially this year, right? Yeah. It, to be clear, it's a hollow achievement, so to speak. But still, the Leafs have never done it. They haven't mm-hmm. been first in the league since 1963 at the end of a season. That's kind of crazy to think about. And, you know, I, I do think that we get tagged as pessimistic. Some people comment and complain. They say, hey, you guys are a buzzkill, and that's kind of how we are temperamentally. But you got to acknowledge some things are going real well this year. You yeah. Know, there's a lot to feel good sure. about. So, For sure. Yeah. And, and big picture, you know, big picture, it, it's still unclear how much has really changed from years prior mm-hmm. and how much of this is circumstance. But there's no way to really answer that question without kind of incorporating your own biases into it. Right. Yes, I yeah. think you and I would both probably agree. Okay, we'd we'd still probably put the Leafs in like the five to eight, five to nine category, right? Mm-hmm. Probably Boston, Colorado, Tampa, Vegas are still the four teams I would favor over us in the playoff series. Then you have other good teams like um, Carolina, like um, Florida right now. Yeah, Florida, things, like, like St. Louis, right? So I think I think the Leafs are in that in that mass. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're you know they're doing very well within their division and. Uh, yeah, th- things are going well, and it's the degree to which they're going well is probably a little fortunate for the Leafs, but it- it's by no means, you know, uh, it's by no means entirely fool's gold. Yeah, it'll be funny when we lose three in a row and then we look back on this podcast, eh, next week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there, there's going to be, it's going to get bumpier from here on out in all likelihood, just because it's really unlikely that you have a completely smooth season That that's, you know, where, where you just kind of dominate the regular season throughout, even when you are one of the better teams. And again, as we both think, the best team in this division. Mm-hmm. So it's worth a survey of the division again. We talked about them before. 
uh, now were uh, maybe a third, more than a third of the well, way through the season. Just shy of half at this point, really. Just shy of half. Oh, my Lord. That's crazy to contemplate. Well, not, not just shy. Uh, I, I, I did math well, badly in my head. Uh, we're like three-eighths through the season. Yeah, if they play a full year, which they might not, right? So Yeah. Uh, a full year being 56 games. If they play whatever full year they've set for themselves, they might not do that either. But we figured it was good to look at the other teams in the division, see how they're doing, how our opinions of them have changed, how threatening they are, because we're going to probably play two of them in the playoffs, and, you know, kind of how they're shaping as our immediate competition and concern. So yep. we figured, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, this is our kind of around the division. We, we usually do this. Mm-hmm. during the year and we, we've talked about other teams you know to, to varying degrees this year because of the mini series format but we're gonna kind of more formally go through every single team in this division and talk about them and we'll do this in uh, reverse order of the standings by points mm-hmm. and that means we start with ottawa yes and so uh we're gonna talk <laughs> i'm gonna talk a bit about my preseason predictions throughout this and how i've been wrong and I'm going to look off on some teams, but I feel pretty good about my Ottawa Senators prediction, which is that they will finish in last in the division, but they will have a lot of fun. And that's what they're doing, mm-hmm. I would say. They're they're very scrappy. They're energetic. They're a pretty good Corsi team, actually. Expected goals are not great, as you might figure, given that they have no established NHL centers of any quality at this point. I mean, Derek Stepan is kind of done. Uh, that's Okay. You know, uh, Tim Stutzla, who is their prestige draft pick third overall last year, is showing a lot of talent. You know, we've seen him make great plays. His production is good. His fancy stats are awful, but that's okay. He's 18 and playing in the NHL on a bad team. Yeah, he's done He's done enough where if you're a Sens fan, you're still very excited. Yeah, Justin Bourne had a good article talking about his play and acknowledging, look, the numbers aren't there yet in an on-ice perspective. But pointing out certain things about him, especially the unpredictability of his game, he was talking about how Stutzla already has a few tricks in his bag in terms of deceiving defenders. Uh, his ability to fake them out with just sort of a, a twitch of the shoulder in the wrong direction to make it look like he's going one way and then going the other. A lot of little things like that that aren't adding up to him being super effective yet, but that suggests that he's going to be a real good player within a couple of years. Right. And it, it's worth noting that I, I feel like the two years where we had um, McDavid, Eichel come in and immediately be great players, and then mm-hmm. the next year we had Matthews and Lainey come in and immediately be, be great players, has really um, kind of shifted expectations for what people expect out of high picks when they are new to the, to the NHL. Most rookies, and I'm just talking rookies generally, most rookies are not positive impact players. Mm-hmm. Right. Let alone even you know the eighteen and nineteen year olds who you know by by virtue of selection bias tend to be excellent prospects because you don't make the NHL as an eighteen or nineteen year old unless you are picked very very high mm-hmm. generally. Um, but e- even for them, you know, outside of the exceptional cases, they are often not going to come in and immediately be first liners. It was weird when Matthews came in and was immediately the best even strength goal scorer in the world. Yeah, like it was I re- weird when McDavid and Eichel came in and immediately were all star level players. Or not weird. Mm-hmm. Like it, they, they were high level prospects. So no, it, well, no one was incredibly shocked, but that's unusual even for high level prospects. Yeah, it stands out. I remember with Matthews, uh, the, the standard we set was 
you know, if he gets 50 points in a season, we'll be happy, 50 to 60. And his performance in his rookie year blew away our expectations. And He got 40 goals. um, Oh, no, 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 he didn't. He got, how many goals did he get? He got a lot, though, and he won the Calder. Uh, He won the Calder. Yeah, they Sorry. all blew together. Let me, uh, I'll get the exact I'm number. I, I, I can't believe I don't remember his. No, he did get 40 goals. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, because he, he got it in like the last game. Or yeah, you know what? Oh, I remember that now. And yeah, the next couple of years due to injuries, he held short of 40. I thought it was the other way around. But yeah, um, that was kind of incredible as a goal-scoring phenom for him to be that good. And, you know, we were talking. He says, okay, he'll probably be the sheltered third-line center at this point. And... It became clear very quickly he wasn't the third-line center. You know, he was the first-line center on the team uh, before long over Bozak and Kadri. Now, he still did end up in a sort of sheltered position for a few years because Kadri generally took the tougher matchups. But still, that's an incredible showing. Yeah. And that's that's well, so rare is what we're saying. Yeah, we um, should make the distinction there between sheltered and, um, I guess, just not thrown to the wolves, right? Like, he wasn't given yeah. cushy matchups. It's just he was not, you know, playing Patrice Bergeron minutes. Yeah, he wasn't, like, the hard match line, which, you know, there are elite offensive players who are mature who don't mm-hmm. do that. So, yeah, that I mean, that's obviously totally fine. He's capable of it now. But you have, uh, bringing it back around to the sense, Tim Stutzla, who yeah, is we, still we, a work in progress. We, we just did the super annoying thing that all Sens fans hate, which is we started about the Sens and immediately segue to the Leafs. Yeah, we're going to do that like three <laughs> more times in the course of this segment. We will not be able to stay on track, but that's okay. We're going to power through. But, you know, in the course of this, and I hope it's some consolation to whatever Sens fans endure listening to us, because you really have to uh, have an open mind to endure all these Leafs fans talking about your team. Uh, but seriously, they're... There are some good pieces there. Brady Kachuk is still very effective, very dangerous. Uh, Joshua Norris at center with Kachuk has had nice numbers and has had a positive impact seemingly wherever he's gone. Um, They're kind of a never-say-die team. They're not Mm -hmm. a good team. They are still bad. But they don't give up, and they're not outclassed. Like, I, I have a term for this, which is oblivion bad. That mm-hmm. I applied to like the 1920 Red Wings, the uh, 14-15 Sabres. Teams that are A, explicitly tanking, but B, are just really abjectly terrible. Getting crushed in the fancy stats. Game in, game out. Look dead on the ice. I got confused for a second and thought you were referring to like the 1920 uh, yeah. <laughs> I realized Red that Wings. as I said it, I was like, that sounds like I'm talking about a team from 120, yeah, it's like, oh, years wow, ago. That, but... That's a deep cut. I didn't, I didn't know Fuleman knew so much about, <laughs> you know, the post-World War One NHL. <laughs> like 15 players named like Gunners McCool or something like that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a deep reference. No, I mean, the, the Red Wings from last year. Yeah, the current Red sucked. Wings, really. Yeah, really basically the current Red Wings, but worse. Yeah. Because uh, I think they're modestly better now, except they can't score on the power play for shit. Anyway, the Sens are kind of showing those signs of life that are really encouraging. They're committed. I, I think that they believe that they have uh, a chance in every single game, and partly as a consequence, they do. Um, and so that you know they had that huge five-one comeback against the Leafs. Obviously, that kind of sucked for us, but you also have to give them credit. That's a team that has some self-belief. And some drive to keep pushing. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing that I think would give Sens fans 
um, reason for optimism is that to the extent that players on their team have good results, it's the players you want to have good results. It's the guys who are, in theory, going to be there in the future. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's Kachuk, it's Drake Batherson, it's Josh Norris, Artem Zub. Uh, looks like he's, you know, kind of found money. Yeah, um, he might be like a real defenseman for them, yeah, which they, and, and, they brutally need. So Yes, exactly. And, yeah. and the guys who aren't performing well, I guess with the exception of Eric Branstrom, who hasn't played too much yet, mm-hmm. but the guys who aren't performing well are, are kind of... The, like the Erica Bransons of, of the team and Austin Watson or whoever, right? So it, it's there, there's a reason to be um, kind of optimistic about the players going forward. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that, um, and this is interesting to me, maybe this is just part of the benefits of having some veterans on this team, you know, surrounding some of the younger players, but they seem to play pretty well with the lead. And maybe I'm more shocked by that because I cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs and have, you know, my whole life, so I've seen some things. But they actually play a kind of persistent trap hockey. It might have been just no- particularly noticeable against that first game between well, Toronto you, and Ottawa. You're, you're, not, you're not wrong. To, mm-hmm. I'm looking at their shot rates by score, which hockey this has, which is a really, really useful tool. And mm-hmm. um, for up one and up two, their, their offense craters when they're up one, but their defense is still quite decent. It, it actually gets much better than league average when they're yeah. up one, and it, it gets even better when they're up two. Which is impressive, um, right? Like, that's commitment yeah. to playing a system. I heard a description of it talking about that first Toronto-Ottawa game, and someone said every time the Leafs started to rush, they were staring down five guys. Like, there yes. were always people waiting back for them. And, you know, that's kind of how you have to claw to win when you're not as good as your, your opposition. If you get a lead... You grip it to death. <laughs> and it's worth noting, um, they've spent, by my quick math, about 180 minutes with a the lead. Mm. They've spent 234 minutes down three goals or more. Yeah. So I... <laughs> it's not common that they get a lead. Yeah. I have to add here, I'm saying positive things about them because they're tracking in the right direction for what they are, which is a rebuilding team. They're not good. Yeah, and, well, and there's also, this is the kind of f- easy slash fun part of the rebuild where you just yes. play the kids and you, you selectively look for the things that make you happy and you kind of wipe away everything else. It's like, oh, you know, there's reasons for that, and there often are. Mm-hmm. There's still major problems, and I'd say the biggest one, and it's something we haven't mentioned yet, they've gotten, and to a large extent, this is what separates them from Vancouver, they've gotten, like, a worst in the league goaltending. It's been terrible. And, yeah, you might say, okay... Well, they have time to work that out. Except one of the few big commitments that they made was to get Matt Murray yes. and to sign him to a considerable contract. He's making $6.25 million against the cap uh, each of the next three years after this one. And That's a horrific contract at this point. That's really, 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 really bad. It's hard to overstate how bad that is. Yeah, I, I have to clarify here. That's the second biggest cap hit on the team, excepting Derek Stepan, who's expiring. Um, it's behind Thomas Javad, but it's a lot of money. And as, say, I don't know, the Montreal Canadiens or even the Florida Panthers, who are resurging behind Chris Dreiger, can tell you, paying a lot of money to a guy who is, at best, playing like your backup and maybe not even that, is not a good situation. And partly because I think they wanted to defer the salary costs, the deal for Matt Murray actually increased 
increases, excuse me, verb conjugation is hard, it increases in actual money owing over time. So they're only paying him four million this year in real dollars. But next year at six, then seven, then eight. And that matters. It's hard to trade. Yeah, it's harder to trade. And Ottawa also has the problem that they can't trade uh, back <laughs> diving deals to the Ottawa Senators to begin with. But uh, that brings me into the other question. If you have two concerns as an Ottawa Sens fan for the long-term future, one of them is that Matt Murray contract, and to a lesser extent, Colin White, who is a bit of a, an albatross deal, maybe. And the other one is they're still owned by Eugene Melnick. And so they're probably going to be subject to an internal cap. And when you waste money on deals like this Matt Martin, blah, Matt Murray deal, that's a Freudian slip, eh? The Matt Martin deal still haunts me. <laughs> anyway, this Matt Murray contract that is going to cost more and more in real dollars over time, that eats into a budget that's already probably lower than most teams in the league. And so that's a bit of a concern. It's not fatal. Uh, or anything like that. It's just problematic, and they really got to hope that he gets it together. He's been, I guess, a little better lately compared to what he was in the first month of the season. Yeah, but it's, this is it what I'm been told. hard for him to get worse. Yeah, because the level worse than that was you're going to the ECHL now for a conditioning stint slash permanent prison sentence. So, yeah, I think that that is something that kind of overhangs it. I don't think that they're actually good. Like, I still expect them to finish last in the division, although hmm, Vancouver seems determined to make it interesting. But I think they will still finish last and they will still pick high, which are both things they should want to do. And I think they at least got a really good player in Stutzla. And the question is, how high is he going to fly? And is it as a winger, is it as a center? They could obviously use him to be a center, but the fact that he's playing wing at 18 in the NHL doesn't preclude that, so. Yeah. Which uh, is one quick note. Stutzla just turned 19, so, oh. now, so now actually we can say he's a bust. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I if, mean, you expect more growth. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> results were explainable at 18, but not at 19. <laughs> um, and to your point about kind of the, those issues facing the Sens, I think if this was a regular team, Mm-hmm. I would be more optimistic about them getting around it. Um, you know, you can, you can, we've seen no contract is truly untradeable. You can get, at some point, I'm sure they might be able to get rid of Murray mm-hmm. um, for some short-term pain or something, or, or you know, giving up a, a pick to do so. But the Senators have fewer resources than a team like the Leafs or, you know, even a run-of-the-mill kind of not super rich team. Um, like, say, I don't know. What's a, what's a not super rich team? Like even even Calgary, right? Mm-hmm. They're like they're they'll spend to the cap. They're not blowing money the way the Leafs do on you know crazy AHL resources and that sort of thing. But they they have more at their disposal than a team like Ottawa just because of ownership. And when you have fewer resources, you have to maximize the ones you do have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that makes it harder to get around mistakes, right? You have a smaller margin for error than a team like the Leafs do. Yeah. So. That, that that's still a problem and the other thing is it's not as if Matt Murray was an inherited mistake it was a mistake made this summer and to I try not to hold you know goalie contracts against most teams because it's just it's a tough position to evaluate and it, it's so uniquely important in hockey 
and it, you can make the right bet and still end up being wrong, but that contract didn't seem good when it was signed. No, they clearly made a bet that they could fix him and return him to the form that he won cups with with Pittsburgh. And I don't know enough goalies to know how sound a basis they may have had for making that bet. I've heard all sorts of things as to what is wrong with Matt Murray. Um, you know, he does look to me like he plays deep in his net. But I don't know. That's the eye test. But whatever it is, if you're going to make a big bet that I can fix this goalie, you had better have a sound basis for it. Or you could be really left holding the bag, as now appears to be happening. It also looks like they really got pretty eager about it. Like they were yeah. convinced that he was going to be the guy who's going to foundation the new version of the Sens because they got him and then they immediately signed him to a deal that was high for what I suspect the market would have been for Matt Murray. It's weird, isn't it? Like he, he came off a pretty miserable 2019-2020 season and still got a pretty notable increase in his salary and a long-term deal with a modified no-trade clause in the final three years. It, it's... Who were you it, bidding it seems, against? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 find, it, I find it odd. Um, I don't know if you watched the highlights of the Calgary-Edmonton game. Sorry, Calgary-Ottawa uh, game yesterday. Murray, he has a spectacular ability to look like a beer league goalie who's <laughs> played in the NHL <laughs> on, on the goals against. Like, That's what you want to hear. Well, it's just the way he moves sometimes, and this is completely unqualified analysis. I don't know anything about goalies, but the way he moves sometimes, it's like, I don't see goalies move like that often, which suggests to me that it's probably not the best way to move. Mm. Right? Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, I think that can be a real problem for them uh, yeah. going forward. It, it, yeah, it, that, that, if I was a, a sense fan, that would be my biggest concern. That, yeah. that contract specifically. Yeah, it's a problem. And just to bring it back around to the thing that you remarked on in terms of resources, we talked about the Leafs getting out of a couple of seemingly inescapable contracts. Dion Phaneuf, David Clarkson. And in both cases, the Leafs basically spent their way out of them. The Dion Phaneuf trade was to Ottawa for a bunch of players who had a lot of salary owing. Um, I know Milan Nikolic was the big name there, but there were a few players. And then with the David Clarkson trade, the, uh, the initial one for uh, Nathan Horton, the result was that we got a player who was not going to play again, but whose deal was primarily not insured. So we agreed to basically spend a ton of money on a guy we knew was never going to play for us just to get rid of a massive cap problem. These are not options that are open to the Ottawa Senators. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a bit of an overhang, but all of that said, I think that this is a fun season for Ottawa. And I think that they have a lot of things to feel good about. They've made a meme calling themselves the sickos based on that, cartoon that you may have seen where it's just someone staring through a window like a creep and that's sort of a a riff on <laughs> the fact that the Sens are playing ugly underdog hockey and knocking off teams they had a huge upset against the Leafs they got Montreal's coach fired as we will discuss that's a fun season in Ottawa even if the rest of the way they bomb out and finish bottom five which they probably yeah the, one of the best things about being a hockey fan Especially, you know, uh, this is especially fun with other Canadian markets because Canadian markets are, are you know, psychos. Um, <laughs> but when you win against a team and then you just, like, visit their fan sites and everyone's just melting down. 
And oh. that that's going to happen every single time the Sens win this year, and it already has, right? So, like, they won't win often, but when they do, it will, like, sustain the life force of Sens fans to just, like, <laughs> go to whatever, you know, SB Nation fan site or subreddit for of the team that they beat and watch them all be like, how did we lose to this god-awful shit team? Fire everyone. Right, right. So. yeah. It's, someone described them as, like, a team of mind flayers just, like, roaming across Canada, psychologically destroying various fan bases. That's a fun state to be in if you're rebuilding. <laughs> yeah. That is a ton of fun. So, yeah, good for them. Last thing I want to mention before we move on, we've already spent too much time on them, um, but Brady Kachuk continues to have continues to, to have that kind of situation where he puts up kind of really insane expected goals numbers, individual expected goals numbers, and converts on very, very few of them. And I've seen some suggestions that basically when you look at things that public XG models do not track, a lot of his shots are essentially no-hopers that get, um, that get inflated by the fact that they're very close to the net, but they might be just like stuffing the puck into the pads of the goalie or whatever. So mm-hmm. I think maybe a year ago or so, we said, hey, if he can actually finish on these, that's that's pretty impressive. But the other, you know, potential reason for his continued underperformance is not just that he's a bad shooter, it's that these chances are heavily overvalued by public XG models. Yes. The only thing I would find interesting to point out is if you eventually play him with a better center... And, you know, I think Joshua Norris has been impressive, but he's not generally considered to be a star prospect or anything. If eventually it works out that they're able to play Stutzla first line center with Kachuk or something like that, do the chances that he's getting get better in quality because someone is passing to him in more dangerous positions and he's not resorting to sort of a jam play at every every turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if if that's something that's going to make a big difference for his play style. I'm just observing that he hasn't had terrific line mate quality. So, yes, also yeah. true. Okay, so let's um, let's move on to the next team on the list, which are the Vancouver Canucks. And we we talked about them in it in the wake of the Leafs kind of fucking them up in the in the three game series. <laughs> There's no real better term for it than that. Yeah, that's uh, that was gruesome and. My first line in my notes for this one was, this team is a disaster. So that's how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. We, when we did uh, our off-season content, as we just found things to talk about, while the league was on hiatus, so we kind of fished around, we talked about the best 10 players under age 23. And both Elias Pettersson, who we had first, and Quinn Hughes featured prominently on that list. And we said, these guys are star players. Maybe superstar players in the making. I stand by that. But the Vancouver Canucks need them to be those guys. Because the Canucks as a whole, not very good. So, when Patterson slumps to start the year as he did, that hurts them a lot. When Quinn Hughes, who is still racking up points in huge bunches, but when Quinn Hughes is struggling defensively, that hurts them a lot because there's not a lot to fall back on. And we are seeing what happens when a team that is top heavy has its top players struggle. It is gross. Also, by NST's expected goals against, this is the worst team in the NHL. And having seen them, I believe it. Yep. I genuinely don't know that I've seen a team that seemed to roll out the welcome mat for teams to just come to the slot. The way that they did. There was no defensive solidity at all. It was gruesome. 
funnily enough, the North has um, the three worst teams by natural statics expected goals against model. Yeah. Um, the Canucks, the Jets, and the Sens. Surprise! And, yeah. And if you, <laughs> I, I, if, you, if you look at Corsi instead, um, the Jets improve to 28th, but the Sens <laughs> and Canucks are still at the bottom. So, you know, mm. there, there's, there's some... There's, there's a reason... Keep, you know, there's a reason Matthews and McDavid and Drysaddle and Martin are absolutely lighting up uh, point totals, and yeah. it has, you know, there's a there's a give and take effect. Are, are mm-hmm. these teams so bad defensively because the offensive talent in the North is, is very very good, which it is, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, or vice versa? But it, it's certain that the numbers are inflated at least a little um, because of how poor some of the teams are defensively. Vancouver, considering the expectations. Is maybe the most disappointing of those three defensively. Um, the Jets, everyone, and we'll talk about them soon. Everyone knows they they have you know cardboard cutouts playing D at this point. The mm-hmm. Canucks you know try to invest in their D by by acquiring Nate Schmidt. Ha- I guess hasn't really worked at least on a team level. Schmidt's numbers aren't uh, they're not awful. They're they're good relative to the team, but they're not good in an absolute sense by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has he hasn't been enough to rescue them. And yeah, it, it's. It's, it's a team that is just gives you total impunity to go to the net, right? Remember at the start of the year, the Leafs were having real problems at, at getting to the front of the net against against teams, not even just against like the Habs, but even against the Flames and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And we played Vancouver, and it just everything was suddenly so clean. Yeah, There's no resistance. It reminds me of like the pre-Trots Islanders. Yeah, it, it was brutal and. You know, it may sound like we're making too much of this because we're going on and on about it, but actually, I think we're not making enough about it. I really want to be clear how bad they suck defensively. So just laying that out there. And Mm -hmm. then you have that issue. Now, this is a team that can score. They have good offensive players. But when you play at that level of porousness, it's really concerning. And then they have this, you know, coterie of depth players like Antoine Roussel, Jay Beagle, uh, beloved... Podcast mascot Jake Bertanen, Travis Simonic. Several of these guys are getting crushed. And we try to keep perspective on fourth liners. I think, you know, at different times in the past, at least I, have maybe gotten too mad at leave fourth liners proportionate to how much they actually mattered. But if all of your depth players are getting slaughtered every time they go out onto the ice, in terms of controlling play, shots, goals, what have you, that's bad. And it's worse... If several of them are making, say, $3 million against the cap, or in the case of Tyler Myers, or Ty Mai, as I've decided to nickname him, thank you, uh, he makes $6 million a year. And he sucks. He's at least yeah. very poor defensively. So, yeah, like, that's a bad combination. Right. And, and again, yeah. to, to relate this back to the important thing, which is the Leafs, <laughs> you, look at, um, you look at how the Leafs have gotten scoring contributions out of three guys on minimums in Travis Boyd, Jason Spezza, and Joe Thornton. That's $2.1 million in AAV. And I would bet you that they have more points than basically combined than all of Vancouver's bottom six. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it, and this is, this is one of the major issues that Vancouver has. They're paying nothing to their good players. Their good players are on much more efficient contracts than the Leafs' good players are. Mm-hmm. Right, I would say they're overall not as good, 
because at least have more higher higher end talent. But you know, you're paying Pedersen 925k. You're paying Hughes 925k. Besser's on a good deal. Horvat's on a good deal. Miller's on a good deal. Mm-hmm. But it's all wasted, and the team is still capped out because they're paying so much extraneous money to these depth guys, and none of them are performing as well as you know guys who are available for 700k every year now. Thornton and Spezza, for example, are they're not available to every team. The Leafs got an advantage there um, through, I think, in part, they're, they're high-end young players who these guys enjoy playing with, and also being in Toronto, right? Spezza's a Mississauga boy. Thornton's from St. Thomas. That's not necessarily available to Vancouver. But the point remains, you know, the Russell contract, the Sutter contract, they're just really, really bad. They're really, really bad, and it's hard to get around those. Yeah, and maybe... You know, in, in a more obvious way, in terms of general management, they let Tyler Toffoli and Troy Stetcher walk. Now, I'm not saying they would fix everything that ails this team, but, you know, Tyler Toffoli's been great for Montreal. He was very good for the Canucks last year, too. He apparently wanted to stay. Similarly, Troy Stetcher, you know, he's a, a lower half of the lineup defenseman, but they could use that at, at this point. And... You can draw a very straight line between overpays to Roussel, Beagle, Myers, and the inability to retain those players. And when you have depth guys who are making $3 million or whatever, and they're not greatly outperforming minimum contract guys, this is what happens. Like, this is the whole argument for the Stars and Scrubs model of team building. And as Lee fans, were pretty invested in it. But the fact remains... Vancouver would have been a lot better off if Jim Benning had just basically said, anyone I anticipate playing in the bottom half of the lineup, I'm not giving them more than a million dollars a year. Like if they had just declared themselves out on any free agent who demanded more than that to play lower, uh, they would be in a much better position and they would be able to retain guys like Defoli and Stature. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. The only thing separating this team from the Sens in the standings is that the Sens have gotten uh, oblivion bad goaltending, to use your term, and <laughs> Vancouver has gotten actually about average or slightly below average goaltending. Yeah. It looks very bad because, again, the Canucks are so bad defensively. But so far as we can measure, Demko and Holtby are kind of just doing their best. Holtby hasn't been great, but they're sort of hanging in under massive quality against. And so I think that there are really serious concerns about this team talking about what do they do going forward because Pedersen and Hughes are going to need raises. Now, uh, the way things are going, maybe the raises are smaller if you want to find the silver lining. And I would note Nils Hoglander, who they, they drafted a while back. I remember we were actually eyeing him before that draft and mm-hmm. uh, we didn't get him. They did. He looks like he's going to be good and he's got two more years on his ELC after this one. You're never doomed in the NHL as long as you start being smart and, you know, you have some core players. They still do. They will have more bites at the apple with this core, but it is pretty embarrassing that this team is still this bad, this far out from, you know, the massive Elias Pedersen draft hit that they had. Yeah, they need, the next two offseasons are critical for this club because they have a lot of money coming off the books and they have to spend that wisely. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know 
what the clouding factors with ownership are there. You, you know, the rumor is that uh, Francesco Aquilini was not keen on spending this offseason to, to some greater extent because he's suffering revenue declines in the pandemic. I don't know. But they need some sort of free hand going forward as the economy recovers. And they probably need to fire Jim Benning. And when I say probably, I mean that they needed to fire him several years ago. But yeah, like, I think it's abundantly clear the guy can't be trusted to build a winning team um, around this core. So they got to take action on that one, I think. Um, yeah, and, then, and, and you know, he's, he's had a long leash as it is. You know, you can't say he hasn't been given his chances. No, you know, he's been in charge a very long time. And I, I will say this. Vancouver has a very energetic and engaged media contingent. And uh, Thomas Durant's at the Athletic. It's a nice way of saying unhinged. Yeah, I'm being polite. But yeah, but they are, you know, they're involved. And the, Thomas Durant's basically said, look, look, you know, if you compare them to the Leafs and how they decided to rebuild, and the Leafs are obviously not a perfect example. They've had their flaws too. But they committed to rebuilding proper. Whereas the Canucks kind of put it off, clung to trying to still make the playoffs or retool on the fly, were still bad, and kept making these sort of short-sighted decisions that didn't really lead to any kind of pronounced success, but that have made that they haven't made the, the larger changes in strategy that they needed to make. And despite that failure to really rebuild, they got the key draft hits they needed, and yet they're not maximizing them. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I guess the bottom line is if there's any team in the Canadian division that should feel really, really bad about how things have gone, it's Vancouver. They should be yeah. in a terrible mood. Yep. Uh, do you want to go to Calgary? Sure. Calgary, speaking of teams in crisis, mm. um, it rectified somewhat by a dominant win against Ottawa yesterday. But Calgary has, has been kind of a Canadian team in, in the most kind of public turmoil recently. I think Vancouver has now just accepted their fate. <laughs> <laughs> and Montreal has fired their coach, so yeah, exactly. uh, that'll fix everything. But Well, yeah, yeah. That, that appeases the fan base for some time, right? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Calgary, I guess the prevailing question, this is something you noted down, it's just why aren't they better? Because mm-hmm. it feels like they should be. It, like their, their stats are fine. You look at the roster, it looks good, not world-beating, but good. They have a good goaltender. They haven't really been getting sunk by goaltending. It hasn't been amazing for them either. But, you know, what what gives? Why is this team not performing well? Yeah, and that's something that I was kind of grappling with because I had Calgary as the third best team in the division. And, you know, maybe I just was wrong and overrated them. That's certainly possible. I'm wrong a lot. But they don't seem like they're terrible. Now, they have a rough record in one-goal games. They win a third of them, which puts them 25th in the league. We know that one-goal games tend to be more subject to variance in luck. And so if you're winning a huge number of them or losing a huge number of them, that can be reflective of the fact that you're kind of getting bad bounces at the wrong times. And conversely, if you're not really outplaying teams, but you're kind of getting all these one-goal wins, that can mean that you are getting lucky. And that was one of our concerns with the Leafs. Early mm-hmm. on, um, and, and to an extent, it's not like it's normalized for the Leafs. They are still winning a lot of one-goal games, but you know the, that's part of kind of the 
the fortune I alluded to earlier, where even if we say the Leafs are a very good team and the best in the division, you know, going forward, we still wouldn't expect them to win 75% of their, their one-goal games. And, and the converse occurs with the, with the Flames. Yeah, I think that they will get better. Uh, the top two lines still look pretty good. You know, they control play pretty well. They mostly outscore their competition. And these are the names that you know. Uh, Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monaghan, Elias Lindholm is their top line. Still productive. And the second line is Matthew Kachuk, Mikhail Backlund, and then Andrew Mangiapane. And that's a good top six. I guess, you know, if you want to make a criticism of it, it doesn't have an absolute gold-plated superstar which stands out mostly by contrast to Toronto and Edmonton. But that's a good top six. I think you could build a cup contending team with that top six. I really do. If you made good choices around it. The bottom six is a bit dicier. Some of them are doing well. Some of them are not doing well. Some of them are getting snowed in. And maybe the most obvious issue statistically seems to be that Mark Giordano is declining. And he's 37. He's had a terrific run. He matured quite late into a great defenseman, a Norris caliber defenseman. But if he can't anchor a pair for them, that is a problem. And that's, that was inevitable, but it looks like it might be one of the things that's holding them back a little bit. Yeah. In, in general, they're a team that looks like they should be on the positive side of, of average. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that, just aren't quite working their way. They're, they're getting average goaltending when, you know, they paid for Markstrom to hopefully give them a bit more than that, right? They're, they're not converting at a particularly high rate. They're undershooting their expected goal somewhat. Um, their power play and penalty kill are both average, right? So, like, they, they should be a little bit better than this, but the question is how much better than this? And then are they going forward, even if we do expect them to perform, you know, better than they have, have they dug themselves a hole that's too large to... Uh, climb out of I guess I wouldn't say too large to climb out of, but large enough that they are, that it's unlikely that they climb out of it, even with better performance going forward. And, and the answer to that is very possibly yes, because there's some real separation in the points percentage between Calgary um, in, in fifth in the division and Montreal, who is in fourth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's concerning uh, for them, which is that you can be a decent team, you know, I still kind of can't shake the, the impression that this is the third best team in the division. And, you know, maybe I'm a little bit off on that, but, you know, they might just be decent to good and a little unlucky at the wrong times and having a few problems that are holding them back. And there's not a ton of time to recover. Yeah. And, I don't, yeah. Even if they're not necessarily the third best team in the division, I, I think most people w- would say based on the roster and based on the statistical track record, there shouldn't be a huge separation between... Uh, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and Calgary. Yes. They should all be teams of roughly the same quality. And they have very different strengths, right? The Jets have probably the best goaltending. The, the Oilers have elite power play and finishers. The Flames are probably the best five-on-five team of those. Um, but, you know, th- they have not had that transit into wins yet. Yeah. And, you know, there's not that much time. And there's a clouding issue of, okay... If this team is underperforming, if this is a year that's going to end with them out of the playoffs or in a disappointing outcome, where do we go from here? And Mark Giordano has a year after this one. You have to expect he's probably going to keep declining. 
Johnny Gaudreau has been seemingly rumored to be drifting towards the exits for like three years. We talked about that in our off-season survey pod. He's got one more year after this one at 6.75. The rumor has always been that he wants to go home. Um, I don't know how true that that may be. He's from New Jersey. And, you know, there are rumors that he wants to play in New Jersey or Philadelphia. It also seems like at times the Flames lose patience with him, despite the fact that he's still very productive. Yeah, there's always been like... It, it, every time the Flames do badly, there's like reports of like, oh, you know, there's concerns that Goodrow and Monaghan don't take the game seriously enough or, you know, mm. the, the, the kind of typical character reports that come out whenever stars are on a team that is not very good. Yeah, and it's tough, you know, I mean, you hear all this chatter, you know, just as someone who talks to people about hockey a lot, and I don't know, like, to, what to make of it, because anytime there's a star, there's there are always rumors of like, does this guy party or what does he do? I don't know. He looks like a good player to me, man. <laughs> but mm-hmm. maybe they've they they've concluded that he doesn't want to be there and they got to trade him while they can, or they're just frustrated with the ceiling over this team. They seem like they had a lot of good things going for them, and yet it hasn't come together to be more than decent. And when you're decent, you know, a little bit of bad luck, a little bit of bad chemistry, maybe knocks you down below that. And when I say bad, bad chemistry, I'm talking about Matthew Kachuk is a, let's say, vibrant personality, uh, to put it euphemistically. And he got into a bit of a scuffle with the Leafs earlier this season, and Jake Muzzin decided to provoke him by flipping a puck at him after the whistle. And Kachuk flipped and got very, very mad. And apparently it was a source of some tension in the Flames dressing room that Kachuk got involved in this circus on the one hand and then no one really backed him up in the ensuing scrum. This is getting very much into the point where I'm reading more in about a dressing room that I can really know, but it does feel like there's a bit of a tension between the way that Matthew Kachuk operates, which is, you know, he's still a great player, by the way, but being kind of provocative and causing a scene causing trouble, all that stuff, and some players who are maybe lower key. And any tension gets exacerbated when the team is underperforming. Yes. So I, I don't know if that's kind of a clouding thing, but in the circumstances that they're in, even if it's a small bit that impairs the performance just a touch, that can be enough to hold them in fifth. Right, so. and you, I can see players on the Flames being frustrated with Kachuk kind of by proxy involving them in these grudge matches against other teams. Where it's like, man, we just want to play. Right? Like every, every single Canadian team hates Matthew Kachuk at this point. And often yeah. <laughs> his teammates are the ones who, who have to pay at least some price for it. Right? And, and especially when it's something like pretty minor. Like it's like the puck flipping instance. It's like, yeah, like, okay, start a scrum. Like, why, why are you throwing a tantrum about it? I can see his mm-hmm. teammates being like, okay, come on, man. Like, just get over it. Yeah. I would get tired of it. Yeah. Now, I, I, don't I don't have the temperament if... to be a pro athlete, but. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how true this is. This is complete speculation. Um, but yeah, I, I can see that being an issue. And I can see Kachuk also justified to being like, hey, like, I, I'm the one trying to spark this team. I'm probably our best forward at this point. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you guys need to have my back because that's what teams do. Right. 
So it and if that's not happening, yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. Now, of course, this is one of the things where it's probably to the extent that if there is any such annoyance on the part of, of the team, it's almost certainly exacerbated by losing, right? When, when things are when you're winning and Matthew Kachuk is being a shithead, you you overlook it because mm-hmm. if you're winning, things are happy, right? There's always there's that old saying that um, winning breeds chemistry, not the other way around, right? Um, so you know, chemistry is often like a post hoc observation. In this case, that would be my guess too. I, I, I doubt that there's some endemic flaw in the makeup of this team that makes them unable to win hockey games. Every year, there's a decent team that you know, underperforms a little bit, and we all scramble to figure out what the reason is, and the next year it's some other decent team that underperforms a little bit, and, you know, it's a cycle. Um, but this underperformance has really uh, put their season in quite notable jeopardy. Yes, and I think it is significant if it has an impact on the decisions that the management group makes. Even if we say, hey, shit happens, one, that's easy for us to say. Right. And two, the North Division is an opening for any team that is a second-tier contender or even a third-tier contender. You know, you're in a softer division. It's probably a chance that you can't count on coming around again, and the Flames have overhanging Mark Giordano is aging. Are we coming to the end of our relationship with Johnny Gaudreau? All of these things matter, and they make a difference. And so it's not impossible that even if this is mostly bad luck, bad timing, uh, bad sequences, that it adds up to a missed season, and then that has consequences for this whole version of the Flames. The rumor has been, as reported by Elliot Friedman, that if this doesn't work out, if the Flames miss the playoffs, they are going to look at major restructuring of the lineup. And they seemed to flirt with it last year and then kind of shied away. Maybe this year it leads to a blockbuster trade. I don't know. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, Hockey Viz has the Flames at just over a coin flip to make the playoffs. But mm. there are four teams above them in playoff odds. So what that means is like the odds of realistically one of the three teams ahead of the Montreal, Edmonton, Winnipeg, um, you know, excluding the Leafs of dropping out is above 50%, but the odds of any one of those teams individually dropping out is, is, is lower, right? The, the Flames are just hoping someone screws up and that they can be there to take advantage. But yeah. like, to an extent, they're, they're, they don't have complete control over, over what they do at this point, over their success at this point. They're, they've put themselves in a situation where they need someone to falter. Yeah. Um, and if there's a silver lining, it's that Montreal may be doing just that. Yeah, <laughs> good segue. Yeah, um, yeah. it's probably worth noting the Calgary Flames, obviously, they have a chance, which is almost the combined chance of the other teams dropping out because Vancouver and Ottawa have played themselves off the scene at this point. So almost anyone falling out of a playoff spot to this point is going to get replaced by Calgary. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Montreal. Uh, things change, huh? Pretty quick. Um a couple weeks ago, we were saying, yeah, I mean, it looks like Toronto and Montreal are going to kind of cruise to 1-2 to in the division in some order. And then, yeah. you know, all kind of the finishing juice that Montreal had had built up over the first two weeks of the season came home to roost. And it's immediately gone the other way. And to the point where you average it out, and now they're, they, they have scored goals, like basically an average team, slightly above it. Yes. Uh so I don't know if I bit too hard on the fancy stat team. Maybe this is because I've dreaded it for so long. When a I team controls... Of us, yeah. Yeah. 
let's, let's be honest, one of our biases is if a team controls play and shots and chances and expected goals, we think probably they're going to be pretty good. Yeah, I and, still believe that. Yeah, but... and there's even a, a parallel with Calgary, Winnipeg, and Edmonton there. I think you and I still both view Calgary as the best of those teams because they're the best at five-on-five five of those teams mm-hmm. at controlling play. But as, as I mentioned, Winnipeg has the best goaltending. Edmonton have the best shooters and probably the best special teams advantage. Mm-hmm. And those stuff do matter. It's just kind of mentally when we think about these teams, we tend to think about five-on-five five play first. Yes. And that's also the case with Montreal. And that, that's probably why when it looked like, okay, you know, they're, they're shooting really well. Maybe they can figure that out. That's a, that's a really scary thought. And that's come back down to earth. And just as importantly, um, their goaltending has not been good. And I, actually what I should say is Carey Price has not been good. And he's played the majority of their games. Jake Allen has been great. Yeah. So these are all kind of clouding issues that they're confronting. And their power play has never been really good in recent memory. It's still not. And that's a problem for them because those are periods where you don't get a ton of goals. Um, it's only modestly below average 5v4 in goals rate right now, which I guess is progress. But like... There are things that hold this team back from being as good as its 5v5 numbers, and maybe we should keep that in mind. I had a discussion on the site when the Habs were riding a bit higher, and I said, okay, their big weakness has always been finishing. They've added Josh Anderson and Tyler Toffoli, who aren't great, great finishers, but who shoot a ton and finish at an average to slightly above average rate. That'll help. And yet they came back to earth so swiftly it's hard to know what to make of it. And you wonder, is this the Claude Julian system? Were they right to turf him as a coach? Claude Julian seemed to constantly be like, pass back to the point, take a long shot, and then make chaos in front. And we'll keep grinding out goals that way, which is a good strategy if you are at a skill deficit, I think. Yeah, and, you know, what they tried to, at least early on, it seemed like they were manufacturing rush offense at a higher rate than they, than they had before. But that appears to have dried up a little bit. And right. if you can't get those kind of low-hanging fruit rush chances, um, you know, what's your plan for breaking down set defenses? Well, yeah, as you said, further, further for the Habs, it was point shots, traffic in front, scrambles. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a little bit hard to get a gauge on them and saying, okay, are they as rough as they've been since they seem to go cold? Are they as good as they were at the start of the season? Probably not. But if they can get to some sort of happy medium where they're finishing on maybe 10% of their shots, they're still a good team. I still think this is the second best team in the division. Maybe I'm taking a while to come around on that, but it's mostly that I'm not impressed with anyone else. So the question is, how much of that shooting is something that they can do anything about? And will it change with the move from Claude Julien uh, to Dominique Ducharme? Or are they kind of stuck with it based on the ability of the players? Yeah, so they've, they've played two games under Dominic Ducharme. Mm-hmm. And I guess kind of funnily enough, they're, they're, I think they were both against Winnipeg. They dominated in, in uh, XG in the more, more recent game. The first game was more even, um, but they lost both, the second one in, in overtime. And it's like, okay, you know... <laughs> I've seen tweets and people discussing, like, oh, they look a bit different in X way or Y way. And I will, you know, I will seed that because I'm not an expert on this sort of thing. 
and I will trust these people who, who watch Habs games more religiously than I do. Um, but I, I'm skeptical of how much is going to change. Mm-hmm. Ducharme was on the staff beforehand, was he not? Yes, he was. Yeah, so to some Assistant extent... Assistant coach. Yeah, so to some extent, I imagine he was on board with, with the system as it, as it was previously. Um, you know, time will tell. I could be wrong on that. Maybe things will, will change. But, you know, it's, it, there hasn't been an immediate boost in finishing over the last two games. You know, far from it. Yeah. Also, you know, they're talking about, okay, well, we greatly outplayed the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah. That's it, true, but that's what happens when you play the Winnipeg Jets. They're right. a terrible XG team, as we will discuss. And Montreal is line. Yeah. <laughs> and so Montreal is a very good XG team. And so the thing is, is that insofar as Winnipeg has strengths, it's that they have several very, very good forwards and great goaltending. And so I said this with the Leafs, a game where the Leafs are narrowly outchanced by Montreal is probably a game where the Leafs beat Montreal. Right. Similarly, and... Montreal needs a big gap on Winnipeg. Yes. And this yeah. is a point that you've made a handful of times where Habs fans, you know, will, will have this game against the Leafs, at least this is where we notice it, where, yeah, they, they outchance the Leafs at 5-on-5 five five and then lose the game because of because the Leafs got a power play goal and uh, Matthews ripped one uh, mm-hmm. by Price's ear. And they're like, no, we deserve to win. And it's like, well, no, our, 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 our team structure is in part designed because we have players who can do that. We have players who are good on the power play, right? It's like, this idea of a pure, the only pure win is a win where you outchance the team at five on five and nothing happens at special teams and there's there's no goaltending errors and there's no elite shooting. Yeah, it, it turns into circular logic team analysis where you're saying, well, the only thing that matters is five v five control of the play. And to be fair, that can go the other way as well. Like yeah. it, there's a there's a grain of truth hidden in that, which is yeah, we should focus on five v five play because that tends to be where most of the game is and that tends to be quite repeatable or more repeatable than, than a lot of the other stuff, but the other stuff does matter. And Montreal is uniformly pretty bad at the other stuff. Yes. And so I think one of the reasons we're so fascinated by the Montreal Canadiens, aside from the fact that it's very funny to us when they lose and bad things happen to them in general, is that they do stand out with a huge discrepancy between the quality of their 5v5 stats and how everything works out for them most of the time. Because the finishing is so poor and the goaltending is dubious. And I gotta tell you, I found it very funny when they, you would see Habs outlets starting to be like, is Price still an elite starting goaltender? I don't know, man. What do you think? <laughs> like, three years later. Like, he hasn't been, by and large, very good for a long time now. Mm-hmm. He's had exceptional stretches. He looked very good in the bubble last year. Point granted. Better than I thought he was going to. But if I'm trying to analyze how good is Carey Price, I would probably take the last few years of data where he's looked like an average starter, maybe, and sometimes less. This year, a lot worse. And so that's a problem for them with the uh, the Price contract. It's a problem in the obvious way, which is that they're spending $10.5 million on a position where you can't really buy a lot of value to begin with. But also, because of his status, because of the contract, which runs for five more years after this one, they're almost certainly stuck with it unless they find a huge sucker willing to take on that deal. So, 
they have this ingrained desire to play Price more than he's probably warranted because in a totally open competition with no priors, Jake Allen would have taken the starting job by now. But because Carey Price is still Carey Price in the eyes of many, and he's paid as if he is, and he's got term, there's an incentive for Ducharme to keep going back to Price probably more than his play would warrant. So I think that that's sort of a compounding issue where it's not just that Carey Price is now playing like a pretty mad goalie. It's that he's playing like a pretty mad goalie and still is called Carey Price, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that that is a serious overhanging issue. I still think that this team, as I've said, is the second best team in the division because they do control play and they do have some players who can finish a little bit. Uh, you know, it looks like they may not end up being a very good finishing team. But despite all the storm and upset recently, it wouldn't be that hard for them to surge back into second in the division um, in fairly short order. Like, they can certainly do it. It's just they've seeded it by losing a bunch of games in a row. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's tricky. You look at their 5-on-5 five five numbers, even goal-based, over the entire season, they're still very good. Mm-hmm. Right? The other thing worth noting is um, so they had a really, really hot penalty kill in terms of scoring shorthanded goals to start. And we kind of said, okay, that's not going to last. Yeah. And the penalty kill has not been good at actually really preventing goals. It, it's, it's you know below average. They also spend a lot of time on it. So it contributes more to you know hurting them than it does for a lot of other teams. Yeah, and... You know, they've attributed that to a conspiracy that's uh, being perpetrated on uh, the Habs fan base by malign refs. But the reality is, I think some of this is how they play, which is, you know, like they have a lot of gritty, energetic guys who are taking a lot of obstruction penalties. You know, they they pride themselves on being a physical, strong defensive team. Sometimes that leads to penalties. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you are a really poor special teams group, which they are, moving the game away from 5v5 is a problem for you. And that's that's something that I think that they've dealt with. Um, yeah. I, the other yeah. thing is, mm-hmm. they've had horrible results at non-5v5 even strength. They have no goals for in 3-on-3, three three and uh, three goals against, I believe. Mm. Uh, they have... So they're, they're five, they're all, their even strength goal differential in total is plus eight, right? Their 5v5 goal differential is plus 16. Mm-hmm. They've lost eight goals to three on three and four on four. Yeah, uh, they've never won a game that went into extra time this year, so far as I can tell. Yeah. They lost so, two in the shootout and three in overtime. Yeah, so, so again, th- that those are... Those are things they're, they're probably legitimately not that great at, at 4-4 four and 3-3. Four and three and three. It doesn't really suit their their, their team in any mm-hmm. real way. Um, but, and, and this is kind of to our point of, they're bad at everything besides the one thing that is that comprises most of the game. Yeah, which and they are, it has to be said, really good at. Really good at, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the 4-4 four and 3-on-3 four and three three stuff will probably equalize somewhat. There, there's almost certainly just some, some bad luck there because no one's that bad. At, at those right mm-hmm. um and as you said they can still 
they have a strong basis on which to build on. And it doesn't, they don't even have to really get better under Ducharme. If they stay the same as they were under Julian and just get a better distribution of um, five on five and a five on five time versus as compared to their entire even strength time, right? Mm-hmm. Or they get, they take penalties slightly less or anything like that, or the goaltending gets slightly better. They will probably rock it back up to finishing second in this division. There's a lot of ways for them to kind of repair themselves. Yes. And they don't even have to get good at the other stuff. They just have to stop being abject at it. And it will kind of push them up. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I, I, I think that's... The, sorry to keep going. Yep, I think go that's ahead. the reason we think they're still the second best team in the division. Because their their foundation is, is still good. Yeah. Our, our big issue with analyzing the Habs has been... The thing that we have learned over and over again to consider the most important, they are very good at. As stats nerds... We tend to favor teams that look this good, numerically, five on five. And the Habs have turned themselves into a weird test case by, at times, being bad at almost everything else. Be that power play, especially, penalty kill is up and down, goaltending comes and goes, and then non-5v5 situations. This year, they've been really rough. And so the instinct for people like us, who are kind of numbers-focused, is to say, okay, but the base is strong, and those things will tend to move in the direction of at least average over time. Yeah, probably. there's no guarantee they do, and there's no guarantee how fast they move. Exactly. And we have some reason to suspect that the Habs are legit bad at some of these things. The power play has not been good in a very long time. The finishing has been pretty iffy for a while. Carey Price has shown signs of decline for several years. So there are reasons to think that they might legit be below average at a lot of these things that we tend to treat as secondary. And all of them together mean that that shot and possession dominance doesn't add up to wins at the rate that we would normally expect. And again, I can't emphasize enough, they are really dominant in in shots and chances. I believe they were first in the NHL in Corsi at last report. They might still be an XG, depending on who you go to. I will double check this. Uh, sorry, they are second in Corsi right now mm-hmm. um, behind the Colorado Avalanche. So, yeah, but still first in XG. Like, these are these are good numbers. These are the things that, you know, we'd be over the moon if we saw the Leafs with them. But the Leafs are better at a lot of those other things. And so if the Leafs did this, we would be saying, okay, they are the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mm-hmm. When the Habs are are just the way that they are with all these pronounced drawbacks, they fall short of what they ought to be. And it's not inconceivable that they miss the playoffs. If those things don't improve and are bad enough, I, I don't expect it. I think we'll see more of them, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, they're in a fascinating bit from a team building perspective, just while I'm, I'm riffing on this. a bit. Yeah. No, let's discuss that. Cause it is, it is mm-hmm. very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've made fun of Mark Bergevin a lot. He's done a lot of things that I think have worked out, quite well we used this analogy last time where we said he seems like kind of a a decent tactical gm like individual moves that he makes often turn out maybe better than you would think and yet the overall strategy seems to keep leading to a team that doesn't get out of the middle tier um you know he has tried to do sort of a semi retool on the fly staying competitive while still also trying to accumulate young talent. He made a great draft pick in Nick Suzuki. Uh, I'm sad because I wanted him. This year, 
The Canadians have all of their own draft picks and one extra second, two extra thirds, two extra fourths, two extra fifths. That's a lot of surplus picks for a team that is not bottoming out. You know, like there are some interesting trends here. And yet it's that thing we talked about with the team on two timelines because Price and Weber are getting older. They are declining and they still have major financial commitments to them. So it's a cloudy picture. They have a big decision coming up on Philip Deneau, mm-hmm. which is, is another thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Deneau has been kind of a lightning rod for criticism in Montreal because, you know, the, the Habs are in like a seemingly decades-long quest to find a legit 1C. Deneau is a guy they're kind of playing there out of default, and he's not a bad player by any means. In fact, he's quite good defensively. Yeah. Uh, he, here's the thing is he has no goals this year. Yeah. Zero. Um, and I actually, I made a throwaway joke about this the other day and someone on Twitter came on and said, Hey, Philip Deneau plays tough competition. He wins his minutes, including in goals. You know, I'm not just saying he puts up great shots and chances like all Habs do. He tends to be on lines that outscore tough competition. Who cares if he doesn't produce much individual offense? And I'm thinking, well, I think you still need someone to kind of drive big margins at the top of the lineup through offense. Now, it has to be said, Deneau does nothing on the power play because, one, it's the Montreal Canadiens, but he's not really renowned for that. And so 5v5, he's okay. But the question with Deneau, I think, is more, where does he fit in the center packing order? He can be a reliable center on a very good team, I think. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. And I'm sympathetic to the argument that, look... The individual offense, we care about individual offense as a, because that is something that helps teams outscore their opposition. Um, a hypothetical player who guaranteed his teams would get 100% goals for, but never got a point, would be the most valuable player ever. He'd be better than Wayne Gretzky, even right. though he never scored. Um, but the thing is, generally speaking, individual offense is kind of tied at least to offensive outperformance. Um, so, yeah, like it, it is a problem still that... Deno does not have much individual offense to speak of, even even though the line does well, right? A lot of that credit also has to go to Brendan Gallagher, who does have quite a bit of individual offense, and Thomas mm-hmm. Tatar, who also does have a quite a bit of individual offense, right? Yeah. Like, it's not just Deno carrying that line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see the, the, criticism, the criticism of him is not completely uh, unfounded in that sense. But yeah. The, the major yeah. problem is just you know, he, he, they're asking him to be something he, he's not, right? And when he doesn't live up to, when he has a, a slump, that should not be the thing that sinks your team. You should have other players who are kind of, whose role is to contribute more offense. And the, the Habs don't really have that elite player. And that's, that's just their team design, right? Um, but yeah, regarding the contract the, uh, dispute, or not dispute, but like the, the contract negotiation, uh, as you mentioned in your notes, he, he turned down an extension and now almost certainly would not get that offer anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the offer was rumored to be six years at $5 million, And the fact that he's failed to score is, is going to hurt him. There have also been rumors that he's not entirely happy with his relative status in the Montreal pecking order. Now, they play him like a 1C a lot of the time. But it's pretty clear that Nick Suzuki and just Barry Kotkaniemi are considered to be the centers of the future which to be honest makes a lot of sense 
<laughs> you know, like they're at least potentially more impactful offensively. And so it's, you know, it feels like Philip Deneau himself is in a constant dispute as to how valuable Philip Deneau is. Mm. And it is a hard thing to apprise, you know, how much of the impact that he has is because he's on a team that dominates in all these metrics anyway. Um, you know, I think he is a very good player. If this were a team in another division, I would be dreaming of getting him as a 3C for the Leafs. He would be unbelievably good at that. And for the year, he would be affordable at it. Obviously, Montreal is not trading him. <laughs> so, especially not to us. But yeah, I, I mean, the bottom line on them is that I don't think that this is a bad team. But their biggest flaw that they need to fix is lack of star offense. And we've said again and again, that's probably the hardest thing to get. And it's kind of the inverse of the Leafs, who, worse and all, have had star offense since Austin Matthews was drafted. And still do. And so as much as we've had ups and downs and issues with this team. We've always had that to fall back on. And what the Habs have to fall back on is more, we're a balanced, strong 5v5 team that controls play. But it's probably easier to add more guys of the supporting cast variety than it is to add star offensive players. And I still think Montreal is is wrestling with a way out of that trap. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on the Habs? No, I mean, we... we... We mentioned the the price and Weber contracts, but I, I think really we, we it, it deserves restating again. Those contracts are a problem. Yeah, you can make a pretty credible argument that the price contract is maybe the worst in the league, maybe behind Bobrovsky, but yeah, it, it's it's bad. The Shea Weber thing, they just have to kind of endure it for a few years, and he might potentially retire out of it. In which case, the cap recapture actually sticks to Nashville through a rule that makes no sense. But, yeah, that that's still a few years in the future. So, they have concerns here. And, yeah. Um, the Winnipeg Jets. XG thinks that they are terrible. Terrible, yeah, terrible, I, terrible. I, I, I know we kind of acknowledged our bias on, you know, the, a bias against the type of team that Winnipeg really is. Yeah. Which is to say we don't like bad teams that are propped up by goaltending because that's what the Jets are. And I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot... I, I, I will go down with the ship on this. I don't think they're good. I don't care what their record is. It's, yeah. it's, it's entirely based on goaltending. Now, look, goaltending is real. If you have a good goaltender, that's the single most important position in hockey. Mm-hmm. But it, it can be fleeting. You're an injury or, or two injuries away from it completely drying up. And... yeah. I'm going to be skeptical of your ability to do anything in the playoffs besides be a monkey wrench for another team. Yeah. Like, any team can beat anyone in the playoffs. The Jets are... I put this in the notes, and this maybe only makes sense to me, but they seem like a bad team that's ideally constructed to win more games than expected. And you say, hey, that just means that they're not that bad a team. And maybe. But they're not really good at hockey. Like, just doing the things that we consider important to winning hockey games, except they do have a couple of very good offensive players, and they do have great goaltending. And so, so it, yeah. It, it's shooters and goaltending all the way down there. Yeah, exactly. And so, 
maybe they're a little better. Maybe they're doing things that are, are hard to measure that are making them uh, better than XG seems to make them look like. But I do not believe that that effect is that pronounced. And it has to be said, they are bottom two in the NHL at this. It's not like, you know, we talked about with the Leafs. Sometimes they were not quite what we would want when they were like 15th or something. The Jets are abject at this. And so, can they outperform that? Sure, I would expect them to. Hellebuck is a fantastic goaltender. They've gotten good goaltending out of Laurent Brossois this year. Um, and Brossard has kind of gone back and forth year in, year out. Some years is good, some years is bad. He is a backup goalie. Is, I guess, another way of saying that. But I just don't buy it. I don't buy that a team with this defense can be genuinely that good. Maybe over time, as, uh, you know, Billy Hanola, for example, and their younger defensemen kind of emerge, that can right the ship a little bit. And if they approached like maybe being even in their, their play driving metrics, I would be intrigued. I would buy that they could outperform that. But when they're this rough, they're not a good hockey team. And I expect that their record will drift closer to that going forward. They're so poor in terms of actually getting chances and preventing the other team from getting chances. They need both really good goaltending and really strong shooting to outperform. They've gotten both so far. It's just... Mm-hmm. That's that that's a tough that's a tough road to go down, right? Things can right. change really really quick. Um, for what it's worth, they are uh, third in the league in PDO. The Leafs are fourth, for what it's worth. But again, as as you just mentioned, if the Leafs lose their shooting advantage, it, it's not good. It's actually it's, it's a major problem for them. But they have a little bit more to hang their hat on than the Jets do. Mm-hmm. If the Jets stop converting. It's like a it's a disaster. If the Jets get two weeks of bad goaltending, they are going to lose six games in a row. Mm-hmm. They're very capable of that. There, and there's no know? margin for error with them when it comes to the percentages. And look, percentages can are are fickle, and that means it could revert back to you know something more approximating an average team. Uh, and it does. It, it should be said. We we should expect them to have a PDO above one generally, but it's mm-hmm. probably not as high as, as they've sustained so far. But, you know, it's a short season. Things can stay, as, as I've said before, you know, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Mm-hmm. And from the Leafs' perspective, that means, you know, these guys can keep scoring and keep saving everything uh, and win a seven-game series against the Leafs if that happens, right? Even though, you know, now we're the Montreal in this scenario and saying, oh, that's not a pure win. <laughs> <laughs> I know that'll be an ironic fate for us, but yes, yeah, and you know they've already put up points, yep, and those are banked. Yeah, and they're there, and we can't take them away from them, despite our best efforts. So, yeah, uh, even if they just play like the fifth best team in the division, which is what I think they are um, at this point, um, I had them sixth before the season started. I will acknowledge I now think Vancouver is behind them, but. Even if they just play like the fifth best team in the division, they probably make it based on points banked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's they're second in the division um, by points percentage. They have a 675 points percentage. Edmonton has a 609 points percentage. So yeah. there's like a decent bit of separation actually between these two teams in terms of um, how they've done so far. To me, and look, with, with the caveat that I could be wrong about this, 
to me, it seems like Winnipeg is Wiley Coyote running off the cliff and they're still just running. They haven't looked down and they, they haven't noticed that, you know, there's nothing supporting them. And when they do, it'll, it'll bottom out. Yeah. I, I'm not sure it'll be quite that pronounced, but I would not be making confident bets on this team. Uh, Winnipeg should also be very happy that this is a short season. Yeah. Yeah, like, because over 82 games, they would have more time to look down. Um, yeah, so, anyway. That said, they've got Pierre-Luc Dubois, uh, who is a neat ad. He's, he's now joined them. He's been productive in the games that he's played. His fancy stats are awful, but, you know, it's only a few games. So, I do think that he's a cool ad for them, and he maybe stabilizes the center situation. And maybe longer term in Winnipeg, things start to look up around that basis, even though the Blake Wheeler contract is going to age like milk and are, is already doing so, but whatever. Uh, yeah. And then we bring ourselves to our opponents last night, the Edmonton Oilers. Um, it's so interesting. Just the way that last night's game went probably mm-hmm. would color how we talk about this one, but I took my notes before the game, so <laughs> it should be consistent anyway. Uh, Connor McDavid this year is playing the best hockey of his life. Yeah, I think. he has been a man possessed. He's been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, you know, we've talked about his defense being a problem before. And I'm still not sure I buy that he's actually great defensively per se. But he's playing at such a high level offensively that it seems to me like he's just not spending very much time playing defense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, he, he was a minus three yesterday, and not that plus minus really means a whole hell of a lot. But on the Marner goal, he was kind of caught puck watching and just kind of floating into position as opposed to picking up Marner. Yeah, right? and again, he got walked by Zach Hyman. And I love Zach Hyman, but when you get walked by Zach Hyman, that's not good for you. Mm. But yeah, but the point is, McDavid's playing at a heart trophy level, and I, I think he's going to win the award as long as Edmonton doesn't fall out of the playoffs. And so, yeah, that's great. And Leon Dreisaitl is a very, very good offensive player. Uh, his PDO is hot like burning right now. He can sustain a high PDO up to some point, but maybe not quite to this extent. Mm-hmm. It also has to be said, at 5-on-5, five five, they now do not play McDavid and Dreisaitl together most of the time. That's been an ongoing change. That's not new, but like the... The tag before was that Dreisaitl was getting carried, and we can say definitively this year that is not the case. Because it's not how he's being played most of the time. Mm-hmm. At least uh, 5v5. And so, all of that said, they have these two guys who can be the foundation of two dominant offensive lines. But when neither of them are on the ice, they get killed. Yep. And, and... It, it's the same same as it, same as it ever was with... with... The Oilers, they're, they're two different teams. They're a team that plays one way when McDavid and Dreisaitl are on the ice, and they're a team that does, you know, absolutely nothing and by design when they're off. And that's the entire plan. The entire plan is do nothing, give McDavid and Dreisaitl time to rest. Yeah. And, you know, I think with the team that they have, that's a defensible strategy. Mm-hmm. But I think the team that they have at this point in Connor McDavid's career is not a defensible strategy level of team building we've made yeah. so much fun of the oilers over the years it's 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 been done but like how is it still this shallow after everything that they've gone through how is it still like this how is the defense still this bad and now granted oscar clef bomb 
missing the year and, you know, being in a bit of a career limbo, that's, that's a very unfortunate thing to have happen. And he was their best defenseman. And, you know, Darnell Nurse is coming into his own a little bit, it seems like. But, you know, even when they get success stories, like the return of Yessi Pugliarvi, or, or, you know, the emergence of Kyler Yamamoto to some extent, we're still seeing a team that is utterly reliant on its top players and doesn't do anything else. And that's that's embarrassing. It is. Um, um, yeah. Now, that said... I want no part of them in a playoff series. Like, oh, hell no. Absolutely none. No. And, and by the way, so first of all, Edmonton has been really, really hot lately, or they were up until last night when the Leafs kind of cooled them off a little bit, but they were winning games in bunches. They've won eight of their last 10. They've surged up to second in the division on points. As we've said, they're third in points percentage, but still, they're winning. And they're not terrible. Like, we kind of just, you know pissed all over the Jets and said, like, look, this is a, a fake-ass team. Edmonton is a top-heavy team that is mediocre on net. But, like, Connor McDavid is entirely capable of winning a series by himself. And he's going to do it to people throughout his career. He may have to. And, you know, in a first-round series, I'm terrified of that prospect, for yeah, sure. The, the, the Oilers are uh, stars and scrubs teams where the stars are better than the scrubs are bad. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that can be enough. Um, especially in the playoffs where, you know, McDavid and Dreisaitl play a lot in general. Um, and so does Ryan Nugent Hopkins. In the playoffs, that's going to be dialed up to 11. Yeah. Right? They're, like, they're going to be playing you know? 30 minutes regularly. Yeah. And, you know, that's extremely tiring. And over time, it might tell. But in the short stretch, that makes them better full stop. Yes. And, you know, we, we, yeah, sorry, go ahead. The other thing that's questionable about them was goal, it, not was, is goaltending. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't been enough to sink them so far. It's been fine, but it's still, like, a going concern, I would say. Well, I mean, they've got 38-year-old Mike Smith, who uh, was referenced earlier in this podcast, actually. And they've gotten quite good goaltending out of him this year. Do I think that will continue? No, I do not. And so... If that falls away on them, that's a problem again. And then they're back on relying on Miko Koskinen, who, you know, it has to be said, um, was pretty decent last year. He's had a bit of a rough start this year. But the Oilers don't have any basis to be super confident in their goaltending. They've had a hot stretch from Mike Smith that has led to a bunch of wins. Great. That's not going to last, I don't think. It could. Goaltending is crazy, but, like, I don't see that you have a basis to expect that to be something that he's going to keep doing at age 38 after a couple of years where he was straight up bad. And last night, he was bad. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're seeing the beginning of that. Y you know, the problems are still very pronounced. Um, also, and I'm just throwing this out there, Tyson Berry has a million points because of who he gets to pass to. This was extremely predictable. I think we did predict it. I do not want him back for all the money in the world. <laughs> Just want to be clear on that. Because I feel like there's a bit of a drumbeat now about like, oh, look at Tyson Berry. He's got so many points. That's all he's going to do. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to break tradition here. I'm going to say a nice thing about Tyson Berry. Zagent. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew what he was doing. 
he, yes. That was, this was an incredibly smart play by Tyson Berry's agent. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yes, he is rebuilding his value with, with points. And we'll see if, other, if teams are smart enough to, to get around it. It's not like his point totals were bad in Toronto. Um, no. But, you know, he's going to look nice in, in a lot of situations in Edmonton when you look at his stats superficially. We'll see if that will translate to a, a big money deal for him this offseason. Um, obviously, the economic landscape of the league is still so up in question, as is, you know, the economic landscape of North America in general. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I guess we'll see. Yeah. But man, if the Oilers give him a big extension, that would be funny. And a very big mistake on their part. But uh, yeah. A- anyway, that's, that's kind of how it is. I think, you know, I feel like I'm sticking to my guns a lot on this podcast. And I want to be clear, there are things that I straight up did not see coming. But I really do believe the Edmonton Oilers are basically what we thought they were. Mm-hmm. If they're having a hot goaltending blip that I don't buy is going to sustain itself, and they have the best player in the world, and they'll go as far as that can take them, and no farther. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to sum up, I guess, in terms of, I think the biggest things that have changed for us from the start of the season is, is that Vancouver is, is worse than we thought they would be. I think we thought they'd mm, be bad, mm. but not this bad. Maybe Ottawa's slightly better, um, and I guess... Winnipeg, in terms of carrying their play at 5-on-5, five five, is maybe slightly worse. Everyone else has been kind of as expected. Yeah. Calgary been, is interesting to me because they seem to have oh, yes, this malaise, and yet I Calgary. look at them, and I'm like, I still don't see that it should be like this, and so I'm expecting it to revert, but I will say they have finished worse than I, I thought they would. Yeah, that, so that's fair. I, no, I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, you look at this and, you know, we talk about how weak the North Division is, how this is a great opportunity for the Leafs. And I think going through these teams, any one of these teams that's contending could knock the Leafs off in a playoff series. And if it happens, we'll be upset. But I genuinely don't see how anyone favors a team other than Toronto to win the division. And in any given playoff round, they've got to be the favorites for the first two rounds the best team here so yeah all right i I think that just about covers it for for us this week a 90 minute podcast for you guys um (laughs) so thank you everyone for listening you can catch all of mine and fulman's work at patchandpanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rb and ad we'll catch you next week